Our text this morning is from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter, chapter 28. And if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to the, Matthew chapter 28. I grew up uh, hopelessly low church. I don't know, you may not know what that means. That means we, we, we didn't have a kind of church calendar or a liturgical calendar that we followed. Uh, but if I were in charge of the liturgical cal- calendar, then every year we would have a mission Sunday right after Easter, like the Sunday after Easter, because those two things are so tightly tied together. We talk about the Great Commission as though it kind of exists by itself, but in fact, to understand what's going on in the Great Commission, it's, it's vital to see it in closest relationship with the, with the resurrection narrative. So we're going to read the whole story, climaxing in the, in the, in the brief passage that was read, uh, read earlier this morning. So Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money. And did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. The peoples who live uh, in that, that very extreme, remote corner live in a world that's so completely different from our own as to, as to make going there like going to another planet. There's no shopping. There are no phones. There's no cars. No medical services, no electricity, very, very few towns, nothing to eat really but cow's milk and cow's blood. A five-day walk to the place to, nearest place to buy grain. I could go on, but it really is a completely different world. Even to imagine it almost beggars belief that, that people still live in such a way, that's there are even people in our world like this. 
It's been called Africa's, Africa's last frontier. And the most common reaction is, do people really still live like that? Do such people really exist? Does such a world really exist? Well, those of us who have been Christians for a while, I think, easily miss what would have been glaringly obvious to those who, who first witnessed the, the resurrection and those who first read Matthew's account of the resurrection. Um, we've all heard stories of those who seem to be dead, maybe have even stopped breathing for, for some time, and then they resuscitated, they, they revived. And we see a couple of those kinds of stories uh, miraculously so in the in the Gospels, that is the little girl to whom Jesus says Talitha kum, or Lazarus, of course, a well-known case. Many modern-day resuscitation stories are people who have stopped breathing for, for perhaps a, a, a few moments, but then they revive. Most modern-day resuscitations, like those that are recorded in the well, all modern-day resuscitations. In fact, all resuscitations. Uh, have to do with people who have seemed to be dead or who in some sense clinically perhaps were dead and then they resuscitated, they came, they revived. But in every single case, eventually those people died. They died. Except one. And that's what we read about in our text, in our text this morning. What we claim as Christians is that only one person has ever been resurrected. Only one person has ever been resurrected. This is not some ancient myth. Ancient peoples did not believe people resurrected from the dead. They knew about reincarnation. You know, there were many people who believed in reincarnation. They knew, they were aware of the occasion of resuscitation. But no one believed that a person truly dead could be resurrected never to die again. This is a brand new thing, a completely new thing. And to those who first realized what had happened, and to the first readers of Matthew's gospel, the reality of a resurrection could only mean one thing. It could only mean one thing. That God's promised new world, the world that he had promised to the prophets, that that world had actually begun. That a new order of reality had broken into time. That the new age in which God would make all things as they should be, the new age in which God would all make all things new, that that had been launched. And for the disciples, as we will see, there is only one clear, compelling implication of that new reality. Go. Go to the peoples of the, to the ends of the earth. Go to every nation. And make disciples. Prior to that moment, it must have been unimaginable to people who had never been more than, say, 100 miles from their homes that they should go to the, to the ends of the earth to do this thing, to, to make disciples. But that is what happens, and that is what Jesus' commission is at the, at the end of the chapter. Never before in the whole 2,000-year his, history of God's dealings with his people... Had he asked them to do anything like this? Occasionally he would send a prophet like Jonah with a specific message to a specific people. But now these, rep, these, these disciples who represent this, this new people, now he sends them. 
And the question is, why now? Why in the wake of the resurrection? But that, I think, is the key thing that that Matthew would have us see in this text, that Jesus sends us to make disciples of the nations because his resurrection has opened up this new world. And that's what we want to look at this morning. There are several things about this new world that I think are important for us to see. And the first thing is that the resurrection of Jesus has opened up a new world, and it's stunning. It's stunning. Strange things have been happening, if you recall, ever since the the crucifixion. It was as if the world was coming to an end. Darkness descends over the land for three hours in the middle of the afternoon. The earthquakes, the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. Rocks begin to split apart. Tombs were opening. People who had been long dead were were coming out of the tombs and apparently loitered outside of the city. And then when Jesus was raised, they went into the city and appeared to many people, Matthew says. Strange, strange things. But now with the resurrection, things get stranger still. Another earthquake shakes the tomb, and now an angel descends, rolls away the stone, and then sits down on it. And the the presence of this angel is the presence of such overwhelming physicality and sort of and 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 brilliant luminescence that those charged with guarding a corpse first quake like the ground that's quaking around them, the text says, and then they fall away like corpses, similar to the corpse that they thought was still uh, that they had been meant. Uh, to guard. But if these momentous, literally earth-shaking events do not exactly bring about the end of the world, to those familiar with this kind of language as it occurs in the prophets, to describe, uh, they, they would have known that it describes the day of the Lord, the day in which the Lord would usher in a new age, a new world, a new order of reality. And so those who witnessed the event, the the women and then the disciples, and we as readers of of Matthew, I think, are intended to see that what the angel says to the woman, that that has in fact happened. That the age of resurrection has come because the one who was dead is risen. Within the stream of prophetic tradition, several things about this, this new world come become immediately obvious. First of all, we see that you know, this is a new order of life. It's a world infused with a new kind of life, such as the world had, had never seen. This life is, is qualitatively different. It's not simply that he's been revived and goes on living the same kind of life that he had before. This is incorruptible life, imperishable life. But I think Matthew also subtly indicates that, uh, that something else has changed as well with this new order of reality. If you remember what the angel tells the, tells the women, tells them, go quickly, tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee, there you will see him. And so what do the women do? They go quickly and do exactly what, you know, what you're supposed to do when an angel gives you something to do. You go. And they're going to do it. But as they go to do what the angel tells them to do, 
They're met on the road by Jesus. Now, the thing that's puzzling about this, curious about this, is that when Jesus speaks to them, he, he repeats almost exactly what the angel has just told them to do. And it, was, it didn't seem from the text that they needed sort of further encouragement to follow through. They're going to do it. But, but, the, but Jesus, nevertheless, repeats the message almost verbatim, except one thing. Except one thing. The new thing that Jesus says to them is, go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. This is the first time that Jesus has referred to the disciples, now the eleven, as his brothers. And knowing that takes us all the way back to the genealogy. Don't let your eyes glaze over. To the genealogy in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we have this genealogy, and it has kind of three sections, three tables. In the first table, there's a reference to Judah and his brothers at the time that Israel was formed as God's people. And then in the second table, you have a reference to Jeconiah and his brothers. Strange enough, but referring to Israel at the time that they were broken apart as a nation. So when you get to the third table, you're expecting a reference to someone and brothers. But it's not there. It's not there because it's here. Now in the resurrection, Jesus, for the first time, identifies with the eleven as his brothers. Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, the resurrected king, with his brothers. Now this is the moment when God's people is being reconstituted, reshaped, reformed. And this people is a people made up of the king with his brothers. That's our identity. That's who we are. So it's a world not only infused with a new kind of life, but a world populated with a new kind of people. A people who Matthew 12 says, who are my brothers, Jesus says, they are the ones who do the will of my father. My brothers and sisters and mother are those who do the will of the father. This is the family of Jesus. And the king is with them, a new kind of people. But there's more. This king, this resurrected Messiah, is a new kind of, of king. The world that is breaking in is characterized first and foremost by the fact that it is ruled by, by a qualitatively different kind of ruler, a very different kind of king, into a world that had been ruled by a seemingly endless stream of dictators and despots, of power brokers and, and, and self-seeking politicians, a new world order has broken in. A world ruled, governed by a king, invested now with universal authority. The authority of God himself, exercised as God's authority by God himself. But nevertheless... He's described as a king who's with his brothers. The new world opened up by the resurrection of Jesus is a world infused with new life, is a world that is populated with a new kind of people, and it is a world ruled by a new kind of king. In short, it's a world of stunning beauty. You see, our challenge in, in mission is not just to, to persuade people to turn from their sins and to trust that Christ's death on the cross is sufficient 
payment for their sins. That, of course, is true, and it's crucial, and it's, it's central. But our message also must declare the resurrection, proclaim the resurrection. And I think as evangelicals, we've often struggled to understand why that's important. We've tended to think about the resurrection as proof. Proof that, you know, what, what we say is true about the cross is really true. But I think what Matthew would have us understand is that the resurrection has its own vital contribution to make to, to our message. What we're saying to others is that even as we live in the same neighborhoods, even as we send our kids to the same schools, even as we have the same problems of sickness and bills and difficulty uh, at work, that not only does another world exist, but it is possible for us at the same time to live within that new world, to dwell under the, and to live under the rule of that righteous king. And that's the challenge of, of mission. It's to paint a picture of life in that new world through the, through the transformed lives that we live, and most especially through the church. That essentially is the role of the church in mission, to paint a picture, a vital, living picture of God's new world. Well, not only is this new world a world of stunning beauty, but even something of stunning beauty can be terrifying. It's also a world that is frightening. It's frightening and terrifying to the, to the soldiers first and then also to the women because the unknown and the, and the news, especially something like this, can be terrifying. People can be amazingly comfortable and content with, what is, with what's familiar, with what they know. And that's the thing that immediately strikes us as we look at the, at first at the reactions of the, uh, of the soldiers and then of the women. Both the guards and the women react with fear. And both the angel and the resurrected Jesus say to the women, they really need to say to the women, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But afraid of what? The answer, I think, can only be that their fear comes from an encounter with a, a reality that's quite unlike anything that they've ever experienced before, with someone who is quite unlike anyone they've ever met before. A few years back, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called The God Who Is There. And what he forcefully argued is that whether we acknowledge him or not, whether we believe in him or not, that God is the God who is there. But what the resurrection shows us is that he's not simply there, but he's here in a powerfully new way. He's not shut up behind, behind sky and veil and stone, but this ineffable power has, has broken through into the, into the world. It's been unleashed into the world. The power of life itself has, has been let loose into the world as though breaking out from the, uh, from the grave. In raising Jesus from the, from the grave, God has pierced a hole through the impenetrable wall between the present age and the age to come. And there's something very, very scary about that. There are plenty of people today, I think, who, who catch a glimpse of that frightening reality 
and turn away. For many people, I suspect, they, they resist the God who raised Jesus from the dead because faced with a choice between their own sort of self-contrived, domesticated religion and the enormity, on the other hand, and the power of such a God as what we meet, as the one we meet here in the resurrection, this overwhelming reality defined by resurrection, they prefer the much more manageable God of their own making. But the greatest impediment to faith is also the greatest impediment to mission. You see, the most fundamental reason why we don't throw our lives and our resources into mission is not a matter of mixed up priorities, I think, or even so much a matter of uncertain callings. The most fundamental reason is that we're afraid of God. We're afraid of a God who not only doesn't mind disrupting our lives, but seems to relish asking us to do hard things and to face hard circumstances in order to loosen our attachments to the stuff of this world so that we may embrace more fully the the stunning but frightening reality of the new world that he has opened up through the resurrection. For the soldiers, this Fear gives way to something. It gives way to, to, to denial, to opposition, and finally simply to disregard. So they go and tell the chief priests what has happened, and the reaction is amazing. The chief priests, we know, were, were Sadducees, and Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that resurrection was, was possible. So whatever the soldiers were going on about, they knew one thing. They knew that it couldn't be a resurrection. They knew that much. It's the one explanation they cannot accept. And so they quickly concoct a story about about the disciples coming by night and stealing the body. But in some way, the the response of the chief priests is more comprehensible than, than that of the soldiers, if you think about it. The chief priests conclude that the resurrection isn't true, Because it can't be true. Dead people don't rise up. But the soldiers, what makes their response puzzling is they know it's true. At some level, they know what's happened. They were there. But influenced by nothing more than a simple financial inducement, they decide that it's easier to live as though it weren't. It's easier to live as though what they know to be true really wasn't true. A few years back, we came to an important decision, and, and there was nothing inherently wrong at that time about our returning, but as we were praying and thinking about it, you know, the question of whether or not we, we, we return initially took this form. It took the form of a question for me. Do, do I really believe what I say I believe? Do I really believe what I say I believe? Now, when we'd gone initially, we you know, we believed, we had faith, but we went with a sort of, sort of youthful enthusiasm, sense of excitement and, uh, and adventure. But by this time, we're sort of 15 years in and faced with this question of whether or not we should return. That's what the Lord kept bringing to mind. Do you really believe what you say you believe? 
But at that same time, a close friend of mine was in the process of walking away from his faith. And I remember talking to him about all these, you know, this cloud of questions and doubts that he had about the existence of God and the truthfulness of, uh, of Scripture, all these questions that eventually made it impossible for him to believe. Um, and finally, I, I said to him, you know, this whole cloud of questions that you've, you know, that you've created, it really boils down to one question. And the one question is this. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Because if he rose from the dead, then the rest of it's easy. But those two options, belief or unbelief, are of course not the only two possibilities. At least not when it comes to Jesus' resurrection. Some people, I think, uh, read this account and they have the impression of you know, these two guards of being like dumb and dumber. You know, they... This, this thing happens, and so they, they, they run back to the, to the chief priest, and they say, uh, you know, about that dead body you told us to guard, uh, you know, we kind of lost it. Um, <laughs> so you can see that, you know, it's kind of a comical scene, but, but the text kind of indicates there's more going on than that. The text kind of indicates that actually the soldiers knew precisely what had happened. That's what the text says. They reported to the, to, the, to the chief priest all that had happened. They know what's going on. And yet, they flinch from the reality of it. At one level, they must have known that Jesus really had risen from the dead, but then they, they chose to live as though it didn't matter. They chose to live as though nothing had changed, as though the single most important event in the history of the world was relatively insignificant compared to the prospect of getting a bit more money, of getting ahead in life just a bit, of just a bit more. And that, I think, is the, the, the reaction that's the most difficult one to understand in the text. To believe the resurrection to be true, and for that to matter only a little. To acknowledge the reality of a, of a world-altering event and for it basically to change nothing. But the view from the tomb tells us that it either matters completely or it doesn't matter at all. But how can it matter only a little? And so often, that's the question that we're faced with when we're considering our own involvement and mission. Does it really matter? Do I really believe? Because if I believe that the world has changed and it affects me only a little, is that the response that this text calls for? Is that the response, the appropriate response to a world-changing event like resurrection? But the women, of course, are different. They, too, respond exactly like the, the soldiers. They're afraid. But soon their fear gives way first to joy and then to worship. They're afraid, of course, of this, this ineffable power, this alien reality that, uh, that, that has confronted them. But then they're filled with joy, not only by the news that the one whom they, they loved is, is now alive again, but also by the possibilities opened up by the very reality that they fear. 
So they immediately moved to obey the instructions given to them by the angel. But then as they're running to keep his instructions, they're met by Jesus himself. And their, in, their immediate response is to fall before him and to worship. Many have claimed that the reason first the women here and then the disciples in verse 17 worship Jesus is that the resurrection has proven that Jesus is God. But that can't be quite right. Because if you think about it, these women believe that eventually everyone would be resurrected. So resurrection isn't something that is, that, that is unique to deity. But yet, when they meet the resurrected Jesus, they do something that they've never done before. They worship him. If you think about these, you know, the, this as a Jewish response to people who, have, who wake up every day saying the Shema. You know, there is one God. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And now they worship Jesus. And the question is why? I think the reason is that the women, that the reason the reason the women worship him is because of what his resurrection uniquely reveals about him. Jesus is going to spell it out to, to his disciples, but somehow these women intuitively know that what the resurrection of Jesus means is something different. What the resurrection of Jesus means as the first to be raised is that God has invested all of his authority in him. All authority in heaven and on earth is vested in Jesus. And so as one who bears the authority of God himself, the only appropriate response, of course, is to worship. And so that's what the women do. John Piper uh, has famously said that mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists because worship doesn't. And that is certainly true from the point of those who are, you know, who are the recipients of mission. But from the, from the point of view of those who sent, it's also true that mission begins when worship begins. Mission begins when worship begins. That is, when we see Jesus as the resurrected one who, who bears the authority of God himself, who, has, who is the king over all of the nations, that becomes the basis, the ground, the authorization, the motivation for mission. And so as we worship him for, as the one who bears the authority of God himself, and as, we, as, as the joy of that new reality dawns on us, then mission becomes the most natural response in the world. You see, this is, this is where mission originates. It doesn't originate out of a sense of duty or demand. Certainly, there's a command in the Great Commission. But it begins with joy and worship. And that leads us, I think, to the last thing that we need to see in this text. And that is that the resurrection of Jesus has not only opened up a stunning world and a frightening world, but is a world for all peoples. And Jesus commissions us to show people from every nation how to live in it. What Jesus claims has happened in his resurrection is similar to what he has already told the chief priest in his trial narrative. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds and sitting at the right hand of the power sitting at the right hand of God, that is, invested with all authority, the authority of God himself. 
And so when Jesus meets the disciples in Galilee, that's the first thing that he tells them. All authority in heaven and earth is invested, is invested in me. Too often, that claim in verse 18 is separated from the, from the commission that Jesus then gives to his disciples to go, but in fact, they have to be held together. You see, in God's new world, Jesus is king over all the nations. He's king, he reigns as the unchallenged king. And all of the other kings and kingdoms will eventually pass away. All authority in heaven and earth is now concentrated in the resurrected Messiah. But the funny thing about the way this new world works is that it doesn't simply and suddenly and immediately displace all the authorities of the world in one fell swoop. One day that will happen. But even now, it's possible to live with, within that new, that new world, under the reign of our new king. It's possible even now. Jesus has, as it were, through his resurrection cleared the path into this new world, and it is possible for us to follow him. But the task of making disciples is the task of enabling people to follow Jesus into that new world. The things, the two activities that, that Jesus points to as, as activities that will, that will inevitably accompany or be required as we show people how to follow Jesus into this new world, are baptizing and teaching. Why those two? I think baptizing, because if people are going to follow Jesus into this new world, several things are going to have to happen. They're going to have to be fit for it. That is, they're going to have to be to be cleansed by Jesus' death and resurrection. They're also going to have to be, to have their identity reshaped and reformed by the Trinitarian action of God. That's what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Given the new life of that kingdom, that will, of that world into which they are, they are moving. So baptizing, but also teaching. People will need to be shown how to live in this new country. How to be shown to, to live within a world in which the resurrected Jesus reigns as king. When we first arrived, it was like stepping into another world. And, and we didn't automatically know how things worked there. We didn't know the language. We didn't really know the culture. We didn't know the customs. We didn't know the way things were done there in that place, in that world. And so we made so many mistakes, comical mistakes. But it was only natural. It wasn't our, it wasn't our world. We had to, to get used to living there. We had to be taught what it meant to live there. And that's the image I think this serves up of, of discipleship and of disciple making. It's to be taught how to live in God's new world. And in one sense, the challenge that all of us face is the challenge of showing others how to get from the world in which they are, in which they live, to God's new world where Christ is king and to show them, to teach them what it looks like, what it means to live in that world. We come to the final verse, what I've called the the Emmanuel postscript in describing the, the task of mission as the task of showing others how to live 
within God's new world, the world where Christ is king, it might be easy to, to, to imagine that that world is, is far removed. In fact, what this text says is it's astonishingly near. It's astonishingly near because the king whose rule creates and sustains that world is extraordinarily close. He says, I am with you always. The king is always in our midst. The king is always with his brothers and his sisters. The one who Matthew tells us at the beginning of the gospel, Matthew chapter 1, you shall call him Emmanuel. You shall call him Emmanuel. You remember that? That was the instruction the angel gave to Joseph. But up to this point, Jesus has never, no one has called Jesus Emmanuel. Jesus has never been referred to as Emmanuel until now. And now, in the context of mission, he identifies himself as our Emmanuel King. God with us. The one who is impossibly near to us. And if we know that, and if our fear of this this new and stunning but frightening reality has given way to, to joy and to worship, then we can go as his, as his fearless disciples to make disciples of the nations. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for uh, this, this passage and the way that it challenges us to, to live in God's new world, to live in your new world. And, and we pray as, that as we get a glimpse of it in the resurrection that you will enable us to be, to be people who live fully within it, to be people who, um, who love what you love as our King, we, people who uh, fearlessly follow you into this new world as, as disciples and fearlessly teach others how to live in it as well. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.